You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. When you're right, you're right. That's usually something a writer, a longtime podcaster, sometimes pundit, and all-around asshole enjoys saying. Not so much this time. Trump is polling well enough in some swing states that there's a chance he could lose the popular vote and win the White House, I wrote in September of 2016. Because of the Electoral College, our founding slave-owning fathers saddled us with this anti-democratic Electoral College because it looked so nice up there on the mantle with that anti-democratic U.S. Senate they got us. I pointed that out in real time with Bill Maher recently that the Electoral College was designed by and for slave owners to protect slave states and got a lot of pushback from the bald eagles and flags and MAGA hat crowd on Twitter. But this isn't something I pulled out of my ass, pulled a lot of things out of my ass over the years. This isn't one of them. As Sean Illing wrote on Vox on November 12th, 2016, after Trump lost the popular vote and won the White House, the Electoral College was created because in a direct election system, that would be the system that exists in all other democracies and at all other levels of our democracy, that would be the system where the person who gets the most vote wins. Anyway, in a direct election system, the South would have lost every time because a huge percentage of its population was slaves and slaves couldn't vote. But the Electoral College allowed states to count slaves, albeit at a discount, the three-fifths clause. And that's what gave the South the inside track in presidential elections. And thus, it is no surprise, Illing goes on, that eight of the first nine presidential races were won by a Virginian. Virginia was the most populous state of the time and had a massive slave population that boosted its electoral vote count. All right. Now, twice in the last five elections, the loser of the popular vote, the man chosen by a minority of voters, won the election thanks to the Electoral College. Al Gore beat George W. Bush by half a million votes in 2000. Hillary Clinton beat Donald J. Trump by 3 million votes in 2016. The country would look very different, needless to say, if Gore had been allowed to take the office he won, and if Clinton had been allowed to take the office she won. The Supreme Court, to take just one example, would have a 7-2 liberal majority if the will of the American people hadn't been thwarted by the ghosts of dead slave owners. To take Another example, the bigoted views of violent white supremacist assholes all over the world wouldn't be trumpeted and amplified by the White House. As David Leonhardt wrote yesterday in the New York Times, the man with the world's largest bully pulpit keeps encouraging violence and white nationalism, and lo and behold, white nationalist violence is on the rise. That our system would, in 2016, elevate a racist, white supremacist bigot to the presidency, a man rejected by a solid majority of American voters, that isn't just a disaster for us, although it is that. It is a disaster for the whole world. My heart goes out to the people of New Zealand and particularly the Muslim community there. The white nationalist who murdered 50 people and injured 50 more last Friday was inspired to kill by our president. We, the American people, have blood on our hands and we need to fucking do something about it. And we can start by doing something about the electoral fucking college. Now, amending the Constitution is hard. There have only been 27 amendments since the U.S. Constitution was adopted in 1789. But there's something we can do about it short of amending the Constitution or instead of amending the Constitution. And that is the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. The states 
the states get to decide how they award their electoral votes. Most states award all of their votes to the person who wins the state, but some dice them up, awarding them by congressional district. And there's actually nothing to stop states from awarding their votes in the Electoral College to the person who wins the popular vote nationwide. And that is what the NPVIC, the National Popular Vote in State Compact, is all about. It would guarantee the presidency to the candidate who received the most popular votes in all 50 states and District of Columbia. And it's already been adopted in 12 states and the District of Columbia, places with 181 electoral votes total. But the law only takes effect and only kicks in after it hits a majority of electoral college votes. That is after it's the law in states and commonwealths and districts and territories with 270 electoral college votes. Now pay attention. The National Popular Vote Interstate Compact has already been adopted in Maryland, New Jersey, Illinois, Hawaii, Washington, Massachusetts, Washington, D.C., Vermont, California, Rhode Island, New York, Connecticut, and Colorado. That's 13 states, three more than the last time I wrote or talked about NPVIC, which is really heartening. NVPIC bills have already cleared the legislatures in Delaware and New Mexico, currently awaiting signatures from their governors. So listeners in Delaware and New Mexico, call your governors and tell them to sign those national popular vote bills that are sitting on their desks. And blue states, where a majority of Americans live, are lining up behind the compact. Shockingly, though, Oregon, one of the bluest of blue states, isn't a part of the compact yet. Neither is Minnesota. So listeners in Oregon and Minnesota, call your elected officials and tell them you want to see your state join the national popular vote movement. The Electoral College put Donald Trump in the White House in 2016. We can end the Electoral College before 2020. Go to nationalpopularvote.com for more info. All right, coming up today on the Magnum, Andrew Rannells, star of Stage, Screen, and Film, joins us to talk about his new memoir and to take a couple of your questions. And, of course, on the micro-free edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's. Hi, Dan. 28-year-old female living in the Midwest. My call is regarding a crush. Um, I have been married for two years now, and I had a fling with a guy in college, which was about six years ago now. It lasted about six months. We were both in it just to have fun. But I think we both caught feelings for each other. I don't know. Anyway, I can't get over this guy. Um, It was the best sex of my life. And I just felt this connection with him that I haven't really felt with anybody else. And Yes, I'm married. I am very in love with my husband. He is the perfect partner for me. I wouldn't have done it any other way. But Dan, this guy is in my dreams. He, I mean, he's also on my Instagram feed and Facebook feed. So I don't know if that, you know, if just the connectedness of society makes it harder to get over ex-lovers. I don't know, but I just think it is crazy that I still think about impressing this guy from six years ago and I'm married. And like I said, I wouldn't have done anything differently. So any any advice that you could give to help me just get past this, I don't know, refocus my fantasies, my attention. I don't know, Dan. Help me, Dan. Help me. I can't get over this guy from six years ago that I follow on Instagram and Facebook. 
First things first, unfollow him on Instagram and unfollow him on Facebook. Maybe if he was a little less present in your social media feed bags, he'd be a little less present in your dreams. You are constantly refreshing whatever mental images you have of him, whatever memories you have of him with this barrage. And if he's a frequent poster on Instagram, this daily barrage of images of the road you didn't take, of the person you didn't choose, and he is now the ass that's always greener on the other side of the fence. And you just got to stop looking at him. That might help you to stop dreaming about him. It may never prevent you from thinking about him and thinking about the awesome sex that you had with him. I would encourage you to think about what made that sex so great. And if there's anything independent of him, just his body, whatever chemical thing that you two had, that you two did together, plow that shit into your sexual relationship with your husband. Now, not everybody gets everything they want in a marital partner, and there's no settling down without some settling for. And a really powerful sexual connection can make a short-term, a successful short-term relationship very memorable. And there are some long-term relationships and some marriage where the sexual connection is there, but it's not as intensely felt and it's not as important over time. So there's nothing illegitimate about your marriage or your feelings with your husband just because you can look back over the course of your sex life and say, I had better sex with this person or we had a more intense sexual connection. And sometimes it's the fleetingness of the sexual connection and sometimes it's the very fleetingness of a sexual connection that gives it its intensity because it ain't forever. All that said, I'm going to tell you something that I did once with and about someone that I couldn't get over. And this was pre-social media, so it wasn't that I was looking at his Instagram every day, but I was with this guy in college, Tommy. He was great. I fell hard for him. I carried that torch for years. And one day I arranged to go meet up with Tommy at Marshall Fields in Chicago and have lunch. And my intent was perhaps to run off with him if I could convince him to leave his boyfriend for me. And about... 10 minutes into the lunch, whatever it was that I felt for Tommy had clearly evaporated. Whatever the intensity of our connection was, it was tied to the people that we were years ago in college when I was a freshman and he was a senior. Something about that moment endowed that relationship. I'm laughing about using the word endowed in reference to Tommy because holy shit, was he ever endowed? But something about that moment in our lives that brought us together gave the relationship some extra oomph, an extra frisson. It was the people we were then that made that connection so intense. And when we met up later in life, the people we were at that stage didn't have that connection and it wasn't so intensely felt and it kind of evaporated in an instant. And I was no longer carrying a torch. I was holding on to wonderful memories, but I wasn't pining anymore for Tommy. I don't know if you should meet up with this guy. It's possible you could meet up with this guy and it could be just as electric and just as intense and you run off with him. But it's also possible that you experience what I experienced and maybe you don't need to meet up with this guy to tell yourself that. That however you felt, however powerful those feelings were, they were about not you and him together, not you plus him equals that, but you then and him then together equaled that then. Not encouraging you to meet up with this guy because I don't want to imperil the marriage that you're in. You say that you love your husband. So maybe you can just vicariously experience that eye-opening moment that I had with Tommy where I was just like, yeah, no, not anymore. Then, yes, now, no. But again, UTMFA, unfollow the motherfucker already on Instagram and Facebook. That's the first step. Hey, Dan. This is a 24-year-old female in a major city in the West. 
And I have a question in that I am not really a fan of oral, neither giving it nor receiving it. I'm mostly straight, I guess, heteroflexible, you could say. You know, I've given and received some oral and I just, I've never been into it. And it seems like everyone all the time just always talks about it and it just seems like a normal accepted thing. And I'm just wondering, is it just something I'm going to have to, you know, get over and just accept as part of a normal sexual young adult that people, you know, let people do oral and form oral on me. Don't put my mouth on any part of your body except the ones that secrete genital fluids. I'm just not into it. And I just wonder if that's something I should try and get over or it just seems so pervasive and everyone's always talking about it and I just am not a fan. Yeah, people talk a lot about oral. I talk a lot about oral. Famously or infamously, I once said, oral comes standard. Any model that arrives without oral should be immediately returned to the lot. That's been thrown in my face as evidence of my misogyny or sexism, but I actually said that to a man about performing oral sex on a woman and a woman about performing oral sex on a man. So I believe it goes both ways, always, because gender is not a binary. That said, we can infer from the numbers of people who complain about partners who don't enjoy oral that there are lots of people out there like you who don't enjoy oral. Yeah, there are a lot of people out there talking all the time about how much they like oral. There are assholes like me saying oral comes standard. But there is a significant percentage of the population that just ain't into it. And that is fine. Just like there's 25, 30% of gay men aren't into anal sex at all. It's fine that you are a straight-ish girl, heteroflexible, not into oral giving or receiving. The people that get complained about are the ones who want to get without giving. Usually male people want to get without giving and rightfully their partners complain because the oral ain't being reciprocated. If you don't expect oral and you don't give oral, at least then you aren't a non-reciprocal hypocrite about it. You aren't demanding. You aren't asking. You aren't getting without giving. You're just not into it and that's fine. The reasons you're not into it eh, seem a little odd to me. You don't like secretions. I assume that you kiss. I assume that you open mouth kiss, which means you are swallowing over the course of your life. If we added it all up, buckets of saliva, and that's fine. But genital secretions, even if you're not into that big blown load at the end, a little bit of pre-cum, you're just not into it. Something about it squeaks you out. I would encourage you to think about what that something might be and whether it's the zap that was put on your head about genitals, male and female genitalia being dirty and disgusting and gross, and maybe you need to sit with that and think about that. And even if you never get over it, at least own it. But you're not obligated to go down on anyone, and you're not obligated to let anybody go down on you if that's not something that you enjoy. Just use your words and tell your partners that you're not into it. And partners who are into it, if they want to form a long-term exclusive sexual relationship with you, may have to grieve it. If they have an open relationship with you, maybe they can do that oral thing with other partners and save PIV just for you. That's what some open couples do. Or you will tell someone you're not into oral and they will look at you and say, oh my God, me either. And be so relieved, so relieved that you two found each other at last. Hi, I'm 19. I'm from London. And I've been listening to your love cast for a few months. I really like it. Um, I have a question regarding a relationship I've been having for around a year so I'm I'm 19 currently, and I started dating a guy who was at the time 27, is now 28 when I was 18. 
and he's only ever been the nicest guy in the world to me. You know, he's never coerced me into anything. He's been like really caring and considerate of my problems. You know, when we don't want to meet, he's fine with that. You know, we can go months without kind of talking and then pick things back up again. You know, we're both non-monogamous and we're both really cool about that. Recently, I've been feeling really weird about the relationship and I've been thinking that it's really odd that he would want to have a relationship with me as an 18-year-old when he's almost 10 years older than me and he could date somebody his age. And I've kind of been talking to my friends about this and everybody has kind of unanimously said, like, no matter how old they are themselves, like, oh, you, should, you shouldn't be with a guy who's so much older than you because his motives are going to be to manipulate you. And, you know, everything's illegal. Everything's been consensual. He's never done anything, you know, dodgy. But um, I just, I have this weird feeling that, you know, he might be, this is really weird to say, but he might be kind of attracted to, like, you know, people who are barely legal or, like, that might be his thing or whatever. And I just don't really have to deal with that because I want our relationship to be authentic and I don't want to lie to him about how I feel. You know, I said everything's fine, but um, I don't know if it really is. So what should I do about this guy? Should I ask him why he's into somebody so much younger? Should I just don't the motherfucker already? I don't know. The question you need to ask this guy is, are you the exception or are you the rule? Are you the rare? Are you the only person who was 18 years old that he's ever dated or gone out with? Or is everyone that he dates a teenager? If you are the exception, it's less likely then that this is his M.O., that he seeks out young, naive, inexperienced partners because they're more easily led, because he can manipulate them. That said, you know, he's never done or said anything that made you feel exploited. He's never done or said anything, you say, that made you feel coerced. You've never done anything you felt uncomfortable with, and he's been a positive presence in your life. If an intermittent one, you say that you've been going out for a year – you describe it as a relationship and you also say you sometimes will go months without so much as speaking with each other. Relationships take all different forms and people don't have to be welded to each other's side to be in a relationship. And I believe that ongoing sexual connections, even if people don't constantly see each other hang out, are themselves, you know, probably lowercase r relationships. All that said, I think the way to resolve your suddenly – uncomfortable feelings about what this relationship is, is to call this guy up and have a conversation with him about what this relationship is and what his MO is. Again, if all of his partners are 17, 18, 19 years old and he's 27, 28, 29 years old, well, then he's seeking out people in your demo for a reason. What is that reason? Perhaps he's only attracted to people who are quote unquote Barely legal, but emphasis on legal. All right. If he's doing that, how's he treating the people that he's attracted to? Is he a good first partner for the 18-year-olds that he is getting with? Or is he a manipulative piece of shit? I don't think you can just say because he's attracted to 18-year-olds and he seeks them out that those relationships are by definition abusive. He could be a great first partner for an 18-year-old. Sounds like he's been a pretty good first partner for you. It's just suddenly this squickiness around age and these conversations with your friends is filling you with doubt. I don't want to give him a pass. Most people who are 28 who only fuck 18-year-olds exclusively, vast times at Ridgemont High-ish, are not very mature themselves. And they may be good at sex and good and decent sex partners for someone who's 
just emerging into who they are sexually and just beginning to explore, but they're often damaged and limited people that no one is going to be with for long. But again, it's possible that you were just the exception. And maybe I hesitate just to stamp Predator on his forehead and send him on his way because I had really great relationships when I was 17, 18, 19 years old with some guys who were in their mid-late 20s, some guy, a guy in his 30s. And they were beneficial and they were helpful. But in almost every case, I look at those guys, I remember those guys, and I was the exception. And they didn't tell me I was an exception to make me feel special, to make me feel more mature than I actually was. I met some of their exes. I met some of their concurrent partners. I met their future boyfriends. And they didn't date a whole bunch of 18-year-olds. I was just thrown in their path because I was out there doing shit in Chicago that most teenage guys in high school my age weren't out there doing. And I was meeting people who were older than I was. And most gay guys my age weren't out yet. So I was limited to older guys. If I wanted to be with anyone at all, then I indeed wanted to be with someone. And luckily enough for me, the guys who were 27, 28 years old that I got with when I was a teenager were good guys. And I benefited from those relationships. And I didn't feel exploited by them. And I still don't. So when confronted with a question like yours, my impulse isn't just to do the math. is isn't just to go 18 minus 28 is a problem. My impulse is to go, okay, who is this 28-year-old? Is he a good 28-year-old or a bad 28-year-old? Is it a good relationship or a bad relationship? Is it his ML? Are you the exception or are you the rule? I can't answer those questions for you. Only you can find out the answers to those questions in conversation with this particular 28-year-old. But you got to trust your gut. Let me end with this. You got to trust your gut. If you are increasingly uncomfortable in this relationship, if the age difference is beginning to bother you, irrespective of anything that he said or done, you have an absolute right to end this relationship. You can move the fuck on from this relationship. Look around. How many people do you know in their 20s or 30s who are with the people still that they were first dating when they were 17, 18 years old? Very few, if any at all. So maybe part of your discomfort here is just you're done with this relationship. And rather than just exit it, you're looking for a reason to exit. You're looking for an excuse and you don't need a reason or an excuse. If you're done, you can just be done. Hi, Dan. I'm a 43-year-old gay man living in the Northeast. I've been in a relationship with my boyfriend of 13 years and from the outside, we seem absolutely perfect. We are both reasonably attractive. We have good careers. We have money. You know, although I have always made many times more than him, a few times more than him. I shoulder a lot of the costs, but that's not really the issue. The issue is, although we look perfect from the outside, we don't have sex. Uh, and when we do, it's mediocre. And um, it's been going on for quite a while. About a year and a half ago, I wrote my boyfriend an email and I expressed all my dissatisfactions and told him, you know, he was giving what he could give me, but I need more. I like to fuck, but I'm not especially horny all the time, I would say a couple times a week would be fine for me, but he's just not able to give that to me. But I did express all of this in an email. He was he was taken aback. He was a little hurt. I asked him for an open relationship and he was unwilling to give me that. So, you know, things improved for a little bit. He tried a little bit more, but things backslid. And about six months after I wrote the email, you know, they were back to normal. They were not really having sex at all. And I just said, I'm 43, time's running out, I need to do something. So I went behind his back and I made some arrangements and, you know, one of these uh, sugar daddy websites. 
and I've met some great guys. Um, I've had fantastic sex with, you know, three, four guys on an ongoing basis. You know, rent in New York is expensive, so I cover their rent, and they come over, spend a couple hours with me uh, every week. We have fun, and um, that's that. That's been going on for a year, and he has no idea that I've been doing this. So my question is, what do I do? I mean, apparently, although I detest lying, I seem to be pretty good at covering my tracks. I don't really want to hurt him, but is this really a relationship or is this a domestic partnership? I, I don't know. I mean, he's physically very affectionate towards me, but I fuck someone else every week. And I'm just a little bit lost uh, as to how to proceed here. Do I break up? Do I disclose? Do I just continue the way things are and say, this is my life? I mean, I, I have a boyfriend and I have a couple of lovers on the side. So 13 years, how yes. soon into the relationship did the did it become sexless? Did the sex go away and die? Well, he met when he was in graduate school and he moved down to New York to, to live with me. And the sex was never really that great but you know we were in love and you know i needed that at the time and he needed that at the time so you didn't prioritize uh, sexual compatibility at the beginning of the relationship and years later that became a bigger and bigger problem correct exactly it that's it okay word to warning out there for everyone who's just started into a new relationship and the sex ain't great it can get great i'm not saying if it's not like amazing out of the gate it can't ever happen but you should prioritize sexual compatibility at the start of a relationship. It always becomes a problem later on. Please continue. Okay. So um, things were okay. And, you know, I expressed to him that I wanted to have more sex. And I enjoyed doing what I, you know, I, I enjoyed actually having sex. And he said, sure, no problem. But then, you know, things waned a bit. And probably four or five years into the relationship, it, it things really got to the point where I had to, really bring it up and say, I, this can't continue. And then things improved a little bit. And then we backslid. So on the second backslide, which was about a year and a half ago, um, uh, you know, after I sent him the second email and we talked about it and things got it better a little bit for a few months, I finally said, I just can't continue this. I'm 43. Um, I'm, uh, you know, not that not that you're dead at fifty, but you know, I mean, things things yeah. slow down as time goes along. Thank you very and, much. Uh, I'm, I'm over fifty, and I don't feel quite dead yet myself. <laughs> I'm here from the future to tell you that you can still have sex in your fifties. Well, I'm happy to hear that. That's 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 uh, that's great. <laughs> um, so so anyway, so I I kind of said that, and and then I asked for an open relationship, and he was really very unhappy about this. He 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 just said no no you you know I really don't want that. I don't want us to be those people. You know that kind of thing, and and he thought there'd be a loss of intimacy. Well, I took him to China. We were sitting in a beautiful, the most romantic view of Shanghai, uh, looking out over, at, at, you know, on, on the skyline. And I said, you know, I'd really like to fuck here, <laughs> and and um, in our hotel, and and. Um, you know, and it, it, it just never happened. Mm. And I, I became so frustrated that I just signed myself up for, you know, this sugar daddy website. And I figured if I could control time, I could control secrecy. It could be discreet. Right. Um, I've had, you know, three or four guys, one of whom I saw every week for practically six months, uh, other than the side eye by my doorman, you know, nobody knew. <laughs> um, so you're... A boyfriend of of 13 years who doesn't want to be in an open relationship is in an open relationship. He just doesn't know it. Exactly. Because you've made some unilateral moves here. And I don't think that 
You don't have grounds to make these sorts of unilateral moves. There's only so long that someone can be pushed away and rejected and so long someone can work at a relationship before they give up and yeah. walk away, maybe not entirely away, partly away. And, you know, people are going to get their their needs met, their sexual needs met. And if you want someone to be monogamous, if your boyfriend wants you to be monogamous, you know, as I've said for a very long time, you kind of got to be whores for each other. You know, if you want to be sexually exclusive, you have to be sexual with that person. And just as and he's kind of imposed a unilateral sexlessness on you where he's willing to drop trow a little bit to shut you up when you raise the issue, but then wants to revert to form unilaterally return to the sexless relationship that he would prefer. That doesn't bother him. Anyone out there who thinks you're an asshole because of your unilateral moves, you've had some unilateral moves pulled on you. Well, and that's how I feel. But there's also an element of, of me feeling, you know, just taken for granted and, and used in a way because it, it, it... Because you make a lot more money than he does and you wonder sometimes if that's why he sticks around. Exactly. And so, and I don't want to be, you know, I, I'm not a bitter person. I'm not, I don't want to be unhappy and I don't want to make anybody unhappy. But at some point, it's been going on for a year and, and you know, as a matter of fact, this afternoon I have somebody coming over. But, but uh, <laughs> Pixar but, didn't happen. But, so yeah. why haven't you left this guy? Like a lot of people out there are going to be going, you know, don't yeah. cheat, leave. And you don't have kids. You're not economically yeah. dependent on each other. You say he makes a decent income himself. And so you're free to go and you're not going to devastate him or, you know, strand him with no. kids or, or impoverish him if you leave. Why haven't you left? Why haven't you done uh, what a lot of people out there would call the right thing and leave? Well, I'm there and I just needed somebody to, to say that to me because I don't have a, I don't have any friends that I can really talk to about this because there are friends. Well, that's not what I expected uh, you to say. I expect you to say, I don't want to leave because I do love him. Do you love him? Do you enjoy your partnership? I do enjoy a, a great number of things about being with him. But, you know, the, the problem is that if I'm substituting the most intimate thing, which is sex in, 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 in many ways, mm-hmm. um, if, if I'm detaching sex from him, what do I, what do I really have? Intimacy, companionship? I, I guess you're right, and and that we do have those things. There's certainly those elements, and our families like each other. There's a lot of you know, there are a lot of ties that bind us. We own a house together, but that's you know, that's that's not a, real estate is not an impairment. No, oh, I think real estate's an issue. I do. I think that matters. I, I just buy them out. I mean, it, it would be fine. Um, it, it would not be an issue for me. You but, know, you're but, um, you're a 43 year old gay man. I'm a 50 something year old gay man. I have known uh, over the course of my out gay life since I was. 16 years old. I've known so many gay couples where there was true love, there was true intimacy, a real connection, a history together, and they never fucked each other. They had sex with other people, but they had a relationship with each other. And that wasn't freakishly uh, uncommon or invalid. And so I'm not trying to talk you out of the decision you made a minute ago to leave this guy finally, but there's nothing, you know, you saying, you know, I'm getting the most intimate things elsewhere. Yeah. Are you, though? Is sex always the most intimate thing about a relationship? Or are there other kinds of intimacy that deserve the same regard and and have the same weight and importance in our life? You know, if you're with somebody for 50 years and you're in your 90s, you're not fucking a lot. But there's a lot of intimacy, companionship, connection, and a history. And that has value, too. So I don't want you to pull the plug quite yet on this relationship because I really want you to think about, you know, you have to set aside the resentment that you rightly feel for not just that you guys didn't really ever have a strong sexual connection, but that, you know, you were rejected 
and this wasn't something he was willing to work on. And clearly he prefers a sexless relationship or as I'm sure some people are thinking, he's doing it elsewhere himself, possibly all this time. I'd be thrilled if he was. It wouldn't bother me at all. Matter of fact, I'd be happy. I just want you to think about yeah. whether there's value there if you can set your resentment aside because I think you have one last Hail Mary pass, which is going to him and saying, this is what I've been doing because I'm not going to lead a sexless life. We can be together, and, and you know, if we want to stay together, it, you know, if you want to stay with me despite being in an open relationship or now knowing you're in an open relationship and you've been in an open relationship for a year, and over that time, there's been no less intimacy in our lives, no less love, no less connection. Like everything you value about our relationship, which clearly you don't value sex in our relationship, everything else you valued wasn't negatively impacted by the fact that I was getting my dick wet elsewhere. Well, well that's a courageous act. <laughs> and it requires me to. It requires me to hurt. It requires me to hurt somebody. Is he hurting and you? In the way, wait, wait. Has he hurt and, you? Oh, of course he has. Okay. Um, in a way, it's almost easier to to say to break up without disclosure. Right. And so that is really the crux of my question, which is, I would prefer to go your route, which is to disclose and say you haven't noticed any difference. So why don't we just keep things the way they are and be happy? Mm-hmm. You know. And and I would love that, but I don't know if that hurt is worse than breaking up hurt. Well, it could be part and parcel with breaking up hurt because if he ends the relationship or wants out of the relationship because you've been sleeping with other people, which I don't understand when people who don't want to fuck you are mad at you for fucking other people. Like this thing I don't want to do with you. How dare you do it with somebody else? Oh, you, I hate bowling. You went bowling with them. Fuck you. I hate you. I don't get it. I know bowling ain't sex and sex ain't bowling, but still, you know, yeah. if you hate mowing the lawn and <laughs> your husband hires a gardener, like, don't complain. Enjoy the lawn. Uh, that said, yeah, it might hurt to find out you've been doing this. But is that really your concern or are you concerned that he's going to like play the victim, complain to family and friends about the fact that you cheated on him and left and you're the shallow sex having person who had to like run around and fuck other guys? Yeah, because you you know the the person who cheats is always regarded as the villain in the story. But I am going to quote Esther Perel for the eight millionth time: the victim of the affair is not always the victim of the marriage. There are some you know other life events happening between now and the end of in March, and um, I would like to get through those and um, and and then have a, a real long discussion about this. And and I am leaning to the side of disclosure and then leaving the ball in his court. That may be the way to do it, rather than if I just said, I'm done, we're over, um, without an explanation, I think it would be very unfair if somebody did that to me. Too. Right, and, and there's you don't have to disclose everything. I've been getting my needs met elsewhere discreetly yeah. for a year in a way right. that didn't embarrass or humiliate you, but I have to have my needs met, and you're unwilling to meet them, and so this is what I've been doing. And what are we going to do about it? Are we going to break up? Are we going to stay together? I'm not going to return to a sexless relationship. And you have to be firm about that. Because sometimes when people make this kind of disclosure, I've been doing what I needed to do to stay married and stay sane or stay boyfriends and stay sane over the last year. And the person will ask you to stop that and get into couples counseling and work on the relationship. And then it reverts to the sexlessness almost instantly and yeah. I don't think that you you have to hold your ground here. And, and you know, in a sex phobic, sex negative, and homophobic culture, you holding your ground where that means I'm going to continue having sex. You're going to come in for shaming and stigma if you do get 
to sit in front of a shitty couples counselor or if this becomes a dispute that yeah. he takes to family and friends and involves other people and you're going to be the bad guy if you disclose the quote-unquote cheating, not that you were cheating him out of anything he wanted. Well, that's the, that's the other point is that if, if I went the other way around and someone, I didn't make any moves on him in months and you knew that was important to them, you would think they would notice after a year and then all the, 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 uh, something is going on or need to be you know, getting met somewhere else. So. Yeah, and maybe he does know. And maybe what you guys have backed into is a DADT agreement that isn't articulated. Don't ask, don't tell. But for your own peace of mind, I think you need to have one knockdown, drag out, throw down conversation with him about it. And good luck. And I, and I want to say, like, I don't think either of you are the bad guys in this scenario. You know, there's obviously some connection. There's some love. There's some intimacy oh, there. Yeah. Uh, and 13 years ain't anything to sneeze at, but you're just not on the same page sexually. And you would need to have a constructive conversation about how you can accommodate each other so that you're able to have sex so that he isn't having sex. He doesn't want to have, or doesn't feel pressured to have sex, but you need to find an accommodation that, that, that saves the relationship and the absence of that conversation, the relationship, or, you know, in the absence of being able to find that accommodation that works for both of you, the relationship is over. That what, that's what you need to put on the table. Thank you again. Talk to you soon. Hi, Dan. I am a 34-year-old woman living in the Pacific Northwest. I am mostly happily married for almost nine years. I say mostly because the last year has really rocked um, our marriage. It's been a really difficult year. Our baby has been in and out of the hospital with severe illness, and that's obviously been very traumatic for both of us, which has made intimacy really difficult. And then the other night, he told me that he likes to wear women's clothing and that he would like to potentially wear my clothing. And I consider myself um, a pretty extremely open-minded, liberal person. You know, I know many people that are transgender. I have my eyes wide open and my heart is open, but this really freaked me out. And I tried to be cool. I didn't want to shame him, but it it really freaked me out. And, you know, of course, I immediately think about, like, Caitlyn Jenner and, and Bruce Jenner secretly dressing up. And, and it's like, holy shit, is my husband transgender and he just can't tell me? And I had a very long conversation with him and he insists that that's not the case. And he insists that he doesn't identify as a woman, but in fact, his desire to wear women's clothing is his way of dealing with toxic masculinity and how much he has always hated the pressure from society to be this manly man that he's not, but that he still loves his male body and he still loves to have sex with me as a man, but he just likes to wear women's clothes. So I guess my question is, should I be worried about this? Is this like a slippery slope thing? I've just never heard of a man that just likes to casually wear women's clothes that is still not like cisgendered heteronormative. Well, it's true that a lot of trans people cross-dressed early in their lives. It's not true that all cross-dressers are trans people. Kind of reminds me of the whole 
bisexual confusion in a lot of the gay male community. A lot of gay guys identified as bi when they first came out, but not all guys who identify as bi are gay guys. But the fact that some gay guys do identify as bi sows a lot of confusion and leads to a lot of faulty assumptions. Same thing here. It is true of the experience of a lot of trans women that they experimented or they were expressing their true gender identity early in their lives through cross-dressing. And because they were afraid to come out as trans, may have told their partners that the cross-dressing didn't mean that they weren't men, that didn't mean that they were trans. Then they had to walk that back, just like I had to walk back by because I identified as bi briefly and I wasn't. But it doesn't follow that there are no bi guys in the world and it doesn't follow that there are no straight, male, relatively heteronormative cross-dressing dudes on the planet – and it's highly likely that you are married to one of them. But you have a right to your feelings. You have a right to be concerned about this new information that your husband has dumped on you and what it may portend. But it's only the passage of time that's going to reassure you that this isn't a slippery slope, that this isn't him coming out ultimately as trans. Of course, it could be that he is trans. It could be that she is trans. Only time will tell and you're going to have to allow that to unfold over time and see where this goes. As for his explanations, his way of dealing with toxic masculinity is pressure to be a manly man. On the one hand, that sounds like somebody who's got a boner wanting to make it not about his boner. It could just be that dressing up in women's clothing turns him on. On the other hand, when you think about people who are, say, into BDSM, there's a lot of relief from societal pressures that goes on in role-playing. In erotic role playing, the cliche example is always the, you know, captain of industry, the CEO, the master of the universe, powerful, rich white guy who goes and sees a dominatrix to temporarily have all of his power stripped from him. Of course, he's still in the power seat. He's paying someone to enact this fantasy with him, but blah, 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 blah. He is letting go of his power because holding that power is a burden at some extent, you know, performing that role, the powerful guy all the time. And sometimes he wants to let go of that. Maybe that's the case with your husband. He is performing masculinity. We live in a culture that looks for any fissures in a straight guy's presentation of masculinity and then points a finger and says, hey, you're not straight. Think of a, I think of a tweet I recently stumbled across. Somebody named Nick Beam tweeted, so let me get this straight. A girl can strap on a plastic dick, bend you over and have anal sex with you, but it's not gay because she's a girl, LOL, LOL, LOL. And I responded, being gay is better than being straight because you can't flunk out of gay. There's a lot of pressure on straight guys. Straight guys are always at risk of flunking out of being straight. A woman can eat a pussy in college. She can have a same-sex relationship, still identify as straight. And there are a chorus of people insisting that she must be a lesbian. Me as a gay man, I had sex with women when I was a teenager. Nobody tells me I must secretly be straight. Otherwise, I couldn't possibly have done that disgusting thing. But the straight guy who lets on that he has some interest or some experience in his history that deviates from rigid, heterosexual, masculine, performative norms will be told again and again and again that he's not a straight guy. He has flunked straight. So your husband's rationalization, his explanation may be true, may be accurate. He may feel under tremendous pressure to perform masculinity and every once in a while he wants to let that go and transgress against the performance of masculinity that he's required to take part in. Kind of makes a rough sort of sense in the same way that powerful CEO crawling around on his hands and knees in some dominatrix dungeon makes a rough sort of sense. So I guess it's just a long way of saying could be telling you the truth about both these things. Just a cross-dresser like so many other guys 
Most guys who cross-dress aren't out. Increasingly, trans women are out about being trans. You hear less and less these days about stealth. Stealth used to be this term that people deployed to mean someone who was trans who wasn't out about being trans. They were stealth. They were passing as cis. Thankfully, we live in a world now where trans women are out about being trans women. And that may contribute to the impression, because you hear trans women's narratives, that any guy who starts cross-dressing in the end is going to come out as a trans woman. But guys who cross-dress, they are not about cross-dressing for the most part. Guys who do this for the reasons your husband says that he's doing it, to transgress against this performance of masculinity, they're still invested in being perceived to be masculine. They're still invested in, for the most part, because they are straight masculine guys and they want to transgress against that. They're not going to be out about it, so you're not going to hear their stories. You're not going to hear their narratives unless you get online and find their porn. Unless you hang out with some guys who cross-dress or know personally some guys who cross-dress as you do. And then in time, you will see, if he doesn't transition, that it wasn't your husband starting to come out to himself and you as a trans woman. But again, it's going to take time. All that said, you don't have to let him wear your clothes. Maybe he thinks your clothes are his only option because he doesn't want to go out and buy clothes for himself. Let him dress up. If it doesn't turn you on, if it's a libido killer for you to see him, you don't have to hang out with him when he dresses up, but maybe give him permission to dress up if it kind of turns you on and, and give it a chance. See, maybe this transgression that turns him on will turn you on too. Go out and buy him some clothes of his own. Hey, Dan. Um, I'm from the Midwest where I have a cousin who's also from the Midwest, and she's driving me nuts, and I don't know how to handle this family situation. Basically, she's never had sex, born-again, evangelized Christian who uh, just went through some insane traumatic breakup with her first-ever boyfriend at, like, 27. They almost got married. It was crazy. Anyway, she is now working for a crisis pregnancy center, which is the kind of place that's like, hey, we're going to talk over your options. You can parent or you can give a kid up for adoption or click this link and we'll tell you about abortion where you're going to die a fiery death in hell. Get the hell out of here. We won't support you. So I called this place um, and I like talked to him on the phone. I got all this info and I confirmed that they're one of those lying, scamming, awful places. And she's now the executive director. Um, and she's never had sex and has no idea about life and in general, I just think these places are poison and horrible, and she's not a close cousin, and I've just been, like, spewing stuff on social media because I'm so mad that anybody I know or even is in my life at all could possibly be involved with one of these places. Do I confront her? Do I tell her that I never want to see her again because this is, like, the worst thing ever? And I, What do I do? I'm so mad. I've known about this now for a week that she's doing this for a job. I have so many issues with it. What do I do? Do I just forget it? Get over it? I don't know. Help. You know what offends me about crisis pregnancy centers in addition to the way that they lie to, manipulate, and terrify and terrorize women who are seeking information about abortion or about their options is that they're federally funded. They get millions of dollars every year in federal funding. So the lies that are told in these crisis pregnancy centers to vulnerable women 
we pay for them. We underwrite them. It's not just money being skimmed out of old ladies' social security checks and megachurches. My taxes, your taxes, go to fund these crisis pregnancy centers. What should you do about your cousin? Well, you can't control your cousin's actions. I'm surprised you know what your cousin's up to. I have 800,000 cousins. I know what a few are doing. Few of us are in touch, but I couldn't tell you where any individual one of them works. Apparently, you're closer to your cousins than I am to mine. You have an absolute right to tell her that you think what she's doing is destructive and misogynistic and damaging and that she lies for a living. She literally bears false witness for a living. And you'd be curious to know how she squares that with her professed Christian faith, considering thou shalt not bear false witnesses right up there with thou shalt not kill and not on that list. Thou shalt not abort. Thou shalt not be a faggot. Not on the list, but bear false witness on the list. And right-wing conservative Christian activists and others seem to be in the bearing false witness business when it comes to queer issues and when it comes to reproductive health. And you should say that to your cousin. You should blow the fuck up at her and then have nothing whatsoever to do with her going forward. You will have to accept that you can't control her. You blowing up at her isn't going to open her eyes. She's not going to quit her job. She's not going to write a check to Planned Parenthood. But you could tell her that you're going to donate a dollar a day to Planned Parenthood for each day she works at this place going forward. That's just 365 bucks a year to Planned Parenthood, if you can swing it, if you can afford it. And I happen to know from personal experience that telling anti-choice activists that if they do X, you will write a check to Planned Parenthood really gets under their skin. She got under yours, you get under hers. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-year-old lesbian living in the Pacific Northwest, and I'm in graduate school right now to become a therapist. I'm really passionate about the work that I will be doing in the future. I... I think it's a really important important work, and my question is about uh, marriage and family class I'm taking right now. I feel as though I'm being graded based on my values instead of my academic merit, and all my other classes I've gotten much better grades than this one, and the feedback I'm getting on my papers is essentially because you don't value a forever marriage no matter what. It's, it's a kind of a Christian school, which I'm not a Christian, but the program is really great, so I'm there. But I just want to know how I can respectfully challenge these views around marriage and relationships in a way that acknowledges the breadth of possibilities in relationships, especially as therapists. I think people are afraid to go to counseling or they're afraid to go see a therapist because of this judgment that I feel like I'm facing as a student. And so I'm really in this bind of how, how do I talk about relationships in this open way with people who are so closed-minded about relationships. You won't find the pro-monogamy bias just at Christian schools, but you're certainly going to find it at a Christian school. The pro-monogamy bias and therapy counseling is prevalent even in secular institutions. But you're not going to get flunked for telling the truth about different relationship models in a secular university. I would encourage you, however good this program is, to transfer if telling the truth in this class is harming your GPA. If you want to buttress your GPA, you can lie through your teeth. You can say whatever it is you think they want to hear to keep your grades up. 
But if you want to tell the truth about consensually non-monogamous relationships or open relationships or the fact that two people can survive a relationship and it have been a success and those two people go on to have future successful relationships, if you want to be able to tell the truth about all of that, transfer. Go somewhere else. It's a little weird to complain about all the closed-minded Christians that you're encountering in positions of power at the closed-minded Christian university that you chose to attend. So I can't say that I have a lot of sympathy for you, but I can certainly understand your dilemma. You don't want to have to lie, but you don't have to stay either. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy App Rescue. I have been a vegan for two years, and it's something that's pretty important to me. I did it for mostly health reasons, but the animal cruelty aspect is pretty important to me. No judgment to people that do consume animal projects. The products. Here's the question. I think I'm into leather. Um, I want, I, I've looked at vegan stuff, but it's not the same. How do I explore this and not feel guilt or stick and still be able to stick with my values? Before I say anything else, I just want to say the vegans are right about cruelty, about factory farming, about the ethics of, of meat eating. And I say that as a carnivore, to say that as a conflicted carnivore who tries three or four days a week to not eat meat for all the good and terrific reasons that vegans lay out. I would direct people to the couple of podcasts that Ezra Klein has done about the subject on the Ezra Klein show. The conversation that Ezra Klein had, particularly with Melanie Joy about her book Beyond Beliefs and carnism as a concept, particularly eye-opening. So I'm with you, vegans, even if I had a chicken sandwich for lunch today. All right, here's what you do. There's a lot of leather in the world from animals that are already dead. You can go out there and you can find online secondhand leather pants, secondhand leather fetish gear. You can go to any thrift store in the world and buy leather garments that then you can have sewn into new leather fetishy outfits for yourself. You can consume leather on the secondhand market, leather that's been discarded. It's possible that some of the people who've discarded that leather or selling that leather are going to turn around and buy more leather. You may contribute to some downline demand for more leather. But that's unlikely. A lot of the leather that's floating around out there, if somebody doesn't scoop it up and repurpose it, reduce, reuse, recycle, is just going to end up in landfills. So you can be an ethical, vegan, secondhand leather fetishist. Hey, Dan. Um, I'm a 32-year-old straight woman uh, living in a big city, and I'm casually dating people. And something I keep running into is that I hate most straight men's bedrooms. I, at least the guys that I'm dating, you know, they have, they don't have a bed frame on their bed. They have like black sheets. They don't have like a real blanket or like comfortable pillows or like, you know, on their dressing. I mean, their side table, they have like a big thing of lotion and like tissue. And it's just, I feel like I'm in like a 16 year old's bedroom, although these men are like in their late twenties and thirties. And I'm just wondering if you think this is kind of a silly thing to be turned off by Um, because, you know, my house isn't perfect. I'm still pretty young and I haven't gotten like all the best things yet, but still I like to keep it nice and like adult. And um, I'm also wondering if there's any listeners out there who have pet peeves about women's bedrooms that um, maybe we should know about. 
Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Andrew Rannells, star of Showtime's Black Monday, which is terrific. You should check it out. You've seen him on Girls and Feature Films. He's a two-time Tony Award nominee for Book of Mormon and Falsettos. He's also got a new book out, a memoir, his first, Too Much Is Not Enough, a memoir of fumbling toward adulthood. But we are not having you on to talk about any of that, Andrew. (laughs) No, none of it. No, you are here to give some sex advice, which anybody can do. Well, Well, let's see. Let's see about that. Uh, so that first question. Yes. I figured you you may have some experience in straight, at least straight identified men's bedrooms, if you're anything like me. <laughs> yes. But I will say I was very, um, I was very troubled by the fact that she said that multiple men did not have bed frames um, or proper pillows or blankets. Um, that seems like that's a very, uh, that's a very bold statement. The uh, thing that, for, the thing uh, that. The thing that I bumped on was the crunchy tissues on the floor, the bottles of lotion and used Kleenexes. Dudes, I know. how hard I is know. it to it, like, scoop it up before you bring somebody home? Don't don't leave just a lotion. Because as soon as she said that, I just pictured like Lubriderm. And I was like, that's, <laughs> not, that's not cool, hon. No, I think she. I think she might need to to broaden her horizons, perhaps, and try to meet some different types of men. Maybe some um, bi guys. I don't know. Maybe some bi guys. I just. I don't know. Is that is that solely like a, a straight twenty something? Well, she said also in their thirties too. Um, uh, issue though, because that seems very specific. And black sheets. Where does one even buy black sheets? I don't know. Although, come on, gay man to gay man, you go to gay men's houses, you encounter a lot of khaki and taupe. True. <laughs> and brown sheets that are True. designed. Uh, well, see, I'm, to camo. I'm more of a Nancy, more of a Nancy Myers. Like I just go white. I just go white sheets. I keep it. I try to keep it crisp. Just wash them. Yeah, just I, wash them if there's a problem. I am also from the school of washer sheets. Let's tackle her actual questions though. <laughs> Does she have yeah. a right to be turned off when she goes home with some straight dude and there's a shitty mattress or futon on the floor with black sheets, inadequate bedding, shitty pillows? a pubic hair speckled bottle of Lubriderm next to the bed and a crumpled up Kleenex on the floor. Is she right to be turned off by encountering that scene? I think you have a right to be turned off by anything you want to be turned off by. So if that bumps her, if that's a thing that that's, that's a line that she's now drawing, I say, of course that's okay. Like if she, you know, if that's, if that's a deal breaker, then that's your deal breaker. That's Okay. I think no, there's there's no judgment there. That is excellent sex advice. See, sex advice. Anybody, literally anybody can do this, which is why everyone and their aunt has a sex advice podcast these days. Uh, there was one other question she put to us that I wanted to put to you. Ready? Yes. Do you have any pet peeves about women's bedrooms? Well, now, I mean, full disclosure, I have not spent a ton of time uh, in women's bedrooms. So I uh, don't know if I'm the best person. Although I did, for a brief period of time, I lived with my best friend, Zuzana. And I will say something that was um, always very disturbing to me was the amount of just errant hair everywhere. <laughs> there, was, there was just like long hairs every place. And it was, it was very deceiving. I lived with, uh, with her and, 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 and another classmate of hers. And everything seemed clean, but upon closer inspection, it was actually pretty filthy. Um, and I've always maintained that girls are secretly dirtier than boys in that mm. respect. It looks it looks tidy, but it's not. That now that may be controversial, but 
I'm just saying it. I, I feel like we should have disclosed this earlier. Um, you are a gay man, as all two-time yes, Tony yes. Award-winning, two-time Tony Award nominees <laughs> are required to be. You can get a one of the, you can get one nomination if you're a straight guy, but two times you got to produce video. Two, yeah, you've got to you you you've got to produce the card, yeah, yeah, the um, documentation of your homosexuality. Now, uh, I'm with you right there, and I think that's a legit pet peeve. I think sometimes women are secretly filthier than men, but you know what? My pet peeve on behalf of straight guys is about women's bedrooms. What is that? Sometimes they're so they're decorated to so in such a feminine way that no guy would ever be comfortable in there that i've you know i've had like friends whose bedrooms were kind of like basically elaborate vaginal canals and, and maybe that's a place a guy wants to be but you know a lot of pink and a lot of like fufara and, and this isn't all women you know but there are sometimes yeah. you know you see women's bedrooms you see pictures and you're like that doesn't look like that's a space that you want any male energy in no so you're you're saying strike a balance i i agree with that there should be some sort of some neutral middle ground there. But I guess, I mean, if you're living alone and you want to Laura Ashley it up, I guess more power to you. But um, yes, I suppose if you're, if you're hoping to share your space, there has to be some, some room for negotiation there. Yeah. I think, I don't think bedroom decor should be gendered. That's a good call. That's a good call. I'm sitting in my bedroom right now wondering like, is this neutral? (laughs) Am I in a neutral space? Can we hold you for one more question? Can we, we stick around for one more? Please. Okay, and then we'll ask a question about the the book. We'll talk about the book, too. Just one second. Hey, Dan. I am a gay 23-year-old living in Manhattan, and I think I am a manstress slash unicorn right now. It's a little ambiguous. I recently hooked up with a coworker after having been flirting with him for a couple months, and now, since then, which was like earlier in the week, we've been sexting a lot. And I found out that he is in an open relationship, but his boyfriend doesn't know about me. So I guess my question is, am I a terrible person for wanting to have sex with this guy, even though I know his boyfriend might not be cool with it? Or is it not really my moral issue to worry about? And I think it would be cool to be a third in their relationship or a unicorn or whatever, but I don't really know how to navigate that because I've always been in committed monogamous relationships. Um, Dan, what? please clarify what a unicorn is for me. I'm not sure if I'm following that. Well, he's misusing the term. A unicorn is a bi woman who is open to or looking to be in a relationship with an opposite sex couple where the woman is bi. Um, and, the, you know, it's basically – they're so hard to find. They're called unicorns, these women who want to be with an established couple as their third partner. Um, we don't use that term to describe gay men who are willing to be the thirds in gay couples' relationships. We don't call them unicorns. We call those horses because they're not that hard to find <laughs> if you look for them. You can, you can basically just throw a shoe and hit one. Right. It's, you know, a unicorn – that bi girl is kind of a mythical beast, but like the gay dude willing to be the third for a gay couple. Yeah, that's a horse. Almost a dog. They're so common. Would a, would a, would a bisexual man who would like to be in a uh, uh, throuple with a, a straight couple with another bi man, is that a unicorn? Does the reverse work? Maybe that's a unicorn – ish or unicorn adjacent maybe that's a griffin i don't know i don't know what that would be uh but unicorn cousin. 
yeah, cousin of a unicorn. Unicorn's little brother. <laughs> but this guy is nobody's unicorn. This guy is potentially somebody's horse, somebody's ride. Yes. All right. So back to his actual question. Um, I don't know. I mean, I have been in that position uh, where someone is like, oh, by the way, uh, we're open, but um, he doesn't really know about it. And that is tricky. Um, again, I feel this goes back to like, what are you comfortable with, sir? I mean, it is up to that man to tell his boyfriend what's going on. But I guess if the caller is cool, just rolling with it. So do people who uh, buy your new memoir, Too Much Is Not Enough, a memoir of fumbling toward adulthood, get to read about those times when you were in this position? Not specifically, but I do talk a lot about, I mean, the, the book covers uh, mostly the time period between like 19 and 25. So there are quite a few relationships that I, that I cover um, in that time, but not specifically this issue, no. It's no. an interesting position to be in. <laughs> you say, you know, you've been in this position where, you know, somebody told you that the relationship was open, but the guy yes. Yes. didn't know. And, and hopefully the guy knew the relationship was open. They just didn't know about you in particular. Um, well, and sometimes I wonder if people are actually like, I think that uh, in my experience, people will say like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah we're open. We're open. Um, like, but d- does everyone know you're open? <laughs> does your boyfriend know <laughs> does you're your open? your boyfriend know you're open? Yeah, <laughs> that, that can be a problem. It's something that people will lie about because they want to get sure. into your pants and they'll tell you what they think they need to tell you to get into your pants and you have to trust your gut and you have to pepper them with questions. Some people are legitimately yeah. in open relationships that are DADT don't ask, don't tell where they've agreed to be yeah. open, but the partner doesn't want to hear about their other partners outside sexual encounters for perfectly uh-huh. legitimate reasons. And it's a functioning open relationship, but that makes it difficult to verify whether you're sleeping yes. with someone who's cheating. Yes, that is very hard. That is very hard to um, to figure out. I don't know. I mean, I guess uh, I, I feel like that's always that's a that's up to him. I would imagine, though, even if it's cool for like a couple evenings, eventually that's going to get annoying. So he may just want to save himself the time and just like pull the cord on this one and be like, "Nah, I'll see you later." Unless, unless the boyfriend's into it, right? That is the he said he was open. Of- of the gay relationship, which is if you sure. can also fuck the person that your partner is fucking, if everybody's mutually attracted to one another, that doesn't it's mean so great. That, it is great. That's why everyone wishes they were gay, but it doesn't mean just if the relationship's open that you are auditioning for a third slot, not every open relationship, even if the couple's willing, you know, up for fucking together, uh, wants a, another yeah. partner wants an intimate, ongoing romantic connection to a third even if they're open to occasionally a role in the hay with a particular very special guest star. So you can't, so the caller shouldn't be making assumptions about what role he may or may not be auditioning for, because it may not be a role that's open or available to him. No, this may just be a callback. You didn't book (laughs) it. This is just, you're, you're maybe testing. This is a, you're at a studio test, but you have not booked it. So Andrew, tell us about the book. <laughs> um, the book uh, is uh, it's a it's a collection of essays that I wrote about my my first years in New York, um, mostly uh, dealing with the time from like uh, my my freshman year of college um, to when I booked my first Broadway show, which was Hairspray in 2005. So um, I just sort of deal with those early years uh, in New York, trying to figure out 
sort of who I was and who I wanted to be and also, um, you know, what this, what my career was going to look like. And it took a couple, um, it took a couple detours along the way in those years. Um, but eventually, you know, I landed where, um, where I was, I was hoping to land. I saw you first uh, on Broadway in Book of Mormon, and you were amazing, and you still are amazing. You're nice. And then I forced a friendship with you. <laughs> I think it was the other way around. I made you go to lunch with me at Joe Allen. Oh, which was, which was a dream. Um, lunch at Joe Allen, the star of Broadway show, the little like Broadway show queen in me, about had a heart attack. But, but I wanted <laughs> to ask you, um, you've been out and gay your entire career, and you're yeah. – Starring on a show on Showtime, you were on Girls, you were in Sex and the City. Uh, I saw you recently with Anna Kendrick in that uh, simple favor. You sometimes hear from people that still to this day that they fear being out as actors because it may negatively impact their career. Has it ever negatively impacted your career? Because from the outside looking in, looking at your career, it doesn't appear to have, but has it? Um, You know what? It doesn't appear to have to me either, but I've also... um, I've really uh, sort of sought after work and, and, and embraced work that uh, allows me to play gay characters. Um, I think that there was a time where um, the writing was much more limited for gay characters, but I'm very happy to say that certainly in the past seven years since I've been working on television, I think writing has gotten significantly better uh, for gay characters. And I think the representation is much, is much better. So I'm, uh, I'm happy to be, I'm very happy to be, to be playing these parts and telling these stories. Um, and I wasn't ever sort of seeking out a career as, you know, like an action hero or anything like that. So, you know, perhaps if that was the path that I wanted to go down, yes, I guess maybe I would have been more limited, but, um, I'm very excited to be, you know, telling the stories and doing the work that I, I get to do. But you have played straight characters. I have. And, you know, most of my, most of my career, particularly my, my, theatrical career um i did play straight characters because that's the bulk of what is is out there so you just learn to you know that's just part of the the job it's all it's all pretend dan it's all pretend (laughs) but don't you worry about getting dragged on twitter for taking roles from deserving straight white male actors you know you know it is i i should probably take a stand on their behalf (laughs) but (laughs) but i don't Care. Yeah, um, fuck them. No. If they can't no. get a bed yeah. frame, if they can't put the tissues in the toilet yeah. and flush it, fuck them. You're going to take their parts. They don't deserve You're the their fucking parts. Trash can with black sheets. I mean, I didn't ask that. Yeah, no. <laughs> the new memoir is too much is not enough. A memoir of fumbling toward adulthood by Andrew Rannells, Broadway and television and film star. Andrew, b- before we let you go, you have a show on Showtime two right now. You have so much going on. Tell us about Black Monday really quickly. Black Monday is um, is uh, very fun. It's me and Don Cheadle, uh, Don Cheadle and Regina Hall, and uh, it follows the lead up to the 1987 stock market crash, which sounds like it might not be funny, but it is a um, a very silly, very broad uh, comedy that takes place in 1987. Um, but it's a, it's a cool sort of mashup of, of tones and genres, and it does follow uh, obviously the the lead up to the crash, but it's also more about sort of this ragtag group of traders in the '80s trying to trying to make a name for themselves. So um, I'm having a really great time with it. Casey Wilson plays my fiance, and she's hilarious. So this is one of the roles you've stolen from a deserving straight white male actor out there struggling yeah. to find work and representation in film and television. I guess I did. I guess I did. I, took, I don't know I took how you sleep at night, but I know it's not on black sheets. <laughs> Definitely not. 
It is not on black sheets, and I have a bed frame and a headboard. And it is Laura Ashley'd out, I'm guessing. <laughs> I'm going to run with that assumption no. until I see a picture of your bedroom. <laughs> Next time you're in town, you're, you can judge for yourself. You can come you can tell me if it's too feminine or masculine. <laughs> Andrew, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. I, I so appreciate it. Dan, thanks for having me. I always love talking with you. Thank you. Hi, Dan. I'm a 32-year-old, bi, pan, queer, non-binary person in California. I want to be out, but I'm pretty cis-straight passing, mostly because I have a male partner. And I think that it's pretty hard for, in general, someone assigned female at birth to present as non-binary because masculine clothes and masculine appearance are just kind of like, oh, that woman is just more masculine. Anyway, I also have to wear skirts due to a medical condition and pants being really uncomfortable. Anyway, just like overall, it's easier to just pass. Like a male friend of mine can come out as bi by hitting on men in a group setting, but straight women compliment and flirt with each other all the time. So just being like, oh, that celebrity is hot, just is like, okay, that's another thing that straight women do. It doesn't put you on the bi-pan spectrum. And kind of on the same way, a non-binary assigned man at birth can present as more feminine and be read as non-binary, but a non-binary person assigned female before assigned female birth presenting more masculine is pretty much read as a butch woman. So I don't know. I'm asking how can I be out? I kind of closeted myself in grad school because it was easier and I had always been in a more liberal location and some of the international students in my program just kind of made me feel like I wasn't going to be accepted based off of some homophobic comments I heard. And anyway, I'm going to be moving soon for a new job and I want to be open. And I don't really know how. People shouldn't make assumptions, but people do. I see a guy with a baby backpack on and an infant in it and I look over his shoulder for his wife or his girlfriend, or the mom. Even though I was a guy 21 years ago with an infant in a baby backpack on my back and didn't have a wife. My kid had a mom. Mom was part of his life, but wasn't around. And so I make that assumption about guys with infants when I see them that was incorrect when people made that very assumption about me. Here's the thing, though. I didn't lose sleep over it. It didn't bother me that some stranger on the street might incorrectly categorize me, might make an assumption about me based on the data that I was throwing out that wasn't entirely accurate. Everybody who needed to know, everybody I know, everybody I love knows I'm gay, knows I was doing this parenting thing with another dude. And that's all that really mattered. So I would encourage you to be out to the people in your life who matter as non-binary and pan and whatever else, and then not concern yourself so much with rooms full of strangers. And I'd encourage you to be a little bit more courageous. You say that in grad school you couldn't be out because there were some people rattling around who were homophobic. Well, by that standard, no one would have been out ever. 
No one will be out now. There's always some people rattling around in our environments who are homophobic. I've even run into homophobic people right here in freaking Seattle with the lesbian mayor who succeeded the gay mayor. Homophobes, they're everywhere. You stumble over them every once in a while. And probably some non-binary phobes and some pan-phobes as well. And you just can't let the existence of these people, haters in your spaces, prevent you from being yourself and being out. Out to the people who matter to you about who you are. And you say that, you know, bi guys have it easy. If they want everybody in the room to know that they're bi, they can start hitting on men. Well, that's not how bi guys come out to people. Bi guys just don't. They're not kissing bandits who run around kissing dudes. Everybody knows that they're not straight even if they're with an opposite sex partner. They're just out. And then people that they know know that fact about them. And if they're not doing that dumb thing that sometimes people do when they come out that I did when I first came out where you swear each person you come out to secrecy, just the fact of your bias or the fact of your gayness becomes a broadly known fact because if people talk about you, they'll mention that if it's relevant. So tell the people in your life who matter to you, tell the people that you work with, tell the people you socialize with who you are. Don't swear them to secrecy and the news will spread and, and people will perceive you for the bi, pan, queer, non-binary person that you are. And then when you walk into a new room full of people who don't know you, come out. If it's relevant, don't worry. If you get miscategorized non-maliciously, I think that's important. The people who saw me with an infant on my back when I was parenting an infant, they weren't making a malicious assumption about me. They were making an informed assumption about me. Most men with infants on their backs in stores are partnered with women. So long as when you set people straight, they don't freak the fuck out at you. I don't think it's violence. I just think it's human nature. We make assumptions all day long. I think the test is when our assumptions are incorrect, how do we react? Do we stomp our feet? Do we shame and fuck with people because they don't match up with our informed assumptions based on statistical averages? Well, then we're not assholes then. But you're going to move through the world. People are going to make assumptions about you. It's a female-bodied, assigned female-at-birth person in a skirt. People are going to make an informed assumption based on statistical averages that's going to be incorrect. And then you have this superpower of fucking with people who've made that assumption. You can tell them who you really are, who you actually are, and then maybe they'll think twice in the future when they meet somebody in a skirt with tits and a male partner about the assumption they might make at that time. But don't let it torture you. You're not on the rack. And don't let the existence of homophobes in some of your environments or biphobes or panphobes or queerphobes or any other kind of phobes prevent you from being who you are. There wouldn't be a space in this world for any of us if we let the existence of haters prevent us from ever coming out. All right, the tweets. Lady Bear Jenna tweets, the fact that Dan Savage is now calling it doggity style after that ridiculous call almost made me snort coffee through my nose this morning. Sorry about that, Lady Bear Jenna. Bill Ryder tweets, at fake Dan Savage, hashtag Savage Lovecast. To the guy who finished before she came, go down on her. Fucking is great foreplay for eating pussy. I will have to take your word for that, Bill. And finally, Dr. Jamie Bear tweets, last night I discovered that if you accidentally fall asleep while listening to the Savage Lovecast, you get really interesting dreams in which at fake Dan Savage is a really, really great kisser, but charges you 50 bucks to fuck you. I would not. Well, maybe. Maybe I would under the right circumstances. If you want me to read your tweet on a future installment of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now some response calls. Hey, Dan. From a monster who's crossed the line, as you said in the last episode, he does need to get therapy. There's not a lot of resources that are friendly to him to find out. 
and what he's going through, he will not understand on his own. But I will say, I wish I'd had a friend. I wish I had someone that believed in me and wanted me to get help before it's too late. But having listened to what his friend said, there is always a fight in their head between a visceral desire for fulfillment and people don't become molesters overnight. If you're a pedophile, it's a long road to justify it. And I'm worried because what he said his friend said sounds very unfortunately familiar. Hey, Dan. So you told the guy who's unsure about whether or not that woman who came and took photographs of him in his show is interested that he should ask a direct question and tell when he asks the question, tell that he's prepared to hear a no and he's going to get a direct answer. And I wish that was true, but I, I'm pretty sure it's usually not true even then. And it's not necessarily that women are afraid or have been socialized to defer to men or are scared or, or afraid of violence. It's just that being put on the spot in that moment is so awkward and so uncomfortable for so many women, especially young women. The older women get, the less that seems to be an issue. By the time they're my age, I have no problem just saying, no, not interested, thank you. But when I was in my 20s, even if someone had said to me, hey, I'd really like to go out with you, it's okay if you say no, just tell me no, I could never, ever have said no. And it wasn't out of fear, it was just out of awkwardness and discomfort with being put on the spot and afraid of, of saying something that would be in any way unpleasant to somebody else, even with the reassurance that that would have been okay. I don't know how you solve the problem, but I just think that you have a simplistic uh, understanding of how young women think. Hey, Dan, um, just calling regarding yesterday's show. The dude was calling because he was complaining that his girlfriend wants to keep having orgasms after he does. And your answer was right on point. Like, that is not a problem, dude. That's a pretty ridiculous thing to complain about. But your advice was to hold off on his orgasm, which I guess is one solution. But another is, you know, after he comes, just keep her coming. I mean, I've had a few partners just like him. It won, you know, three, four, five, six. And sometimes I didn't want to wait that long. She didn't want me to wait that long. So I would go ahead and and come and then just get down there and get her off some more. So, yeah, that's another option for him. Just get it out of his head that after he's done, the sex is done, and just keep going. All right, before we go, Savage Love Live is coming to Vancouver, British Columbia, this Saturday, March 23rd. We're going to be at the Vancouver Playhouse. Go to savagelovecast.com and click on events. Savage Love Live is also coming to Minneapolis and Chicago and a whole bunch of other cities this year. Go to savagelovecast.com slash events for info and tickets. And I will see you this Saturday, Vancouver. All right, we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. You can't follow Andrew Rannells on Twitter. I don't think he's on Twitter, but you can and you should order his new book, Too Much Is Not Enough. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We'll be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading. 